Hey everyone, how are you doing? I hope you're having a good day today. I'm Natalie, I'm the host and founder of Yellow Bee Pod, a podcast all about the stories of East and Southeast Asian diaspora. I started this podcast to try to amplify some of the different voices in these communities and I'm having a lot of fun with it so far. For those of you who have listened to an episode before, thank you for tuning in and for coming back. Um, I'm looking at it now and we've had over 100 listeners on our first episode, which was released last Friday. So that is absolutely amazing and it's so fantastic to, to hear from people who found it resonated with them, that they found it relatable. It's also great to hear from people who had different experiences. But yeah, I've been super, super thrilled by the reception so far. People listening in and enjoying it and sharing it with their friends. It's been fantastic. Um, so thank you again for listening. I'm also super thrilled by the reception from people I've reached out to. I've been reaching out to people to ask whether they would like to be featured as a guest on a future episode and people have been really keen so I've been I've actually taken the week off work this week to get my head down with the podcasting so reaching out to people recording episodes and editing as well so I've got some great guests and conversations coming up in the next couple of weeks. I've released three episodes in the last week and I won't be keeping up that schedule forever. I just wanted to make sure that I was pushing some content out there while the podcast is brand new so that anyone who comes and finds this podcast can see that there's a few different topics and a few different episodes that they can listen to. In this episode, my guest is Basil Witzker, who's Brunayan, so I'm calling him in from a completely different time zone. Yay for technology! In this episode, we talk a bit about Brunei's recent history and all the different cultures there are in Brunei. We also talk about Ramadan and Basil's passion for musical theatre. He is part of an organisation that puts on musical theatre productions and he shares some of the challenges and successes that he's seen from putting on theatre productions there. In the UK, I think it's quite easy for us to have a limited view of what Brunei is like. It is a very small country but it's very rich in cultures and I found this conversation super informative actually but also really fun. There might be some issues with the audio because we were recording online with like air conditioning and everything else going on in the back but the conversation we had is super interesting so stick around for that. I hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks again for tuning in to Yellow Bee Pod. so much for joining me Basil Witzker today on Yellow Bee Pod really appreciate it and also because you're seven hours ahead of me yeah uh, so it's nearly bedtime for you well <laughs> since this quarantine thing my bedtime's been like gone awry so <laughs> yeah so Basil please introduce yourself who are you and where are you okay so I'm Basil Witzker and I'm currently in the small tiny island nation of Brunei Darussalam I am 25 and I am an English teacher and I've taught in uh, all sorts of schools around the country. So I've started off um, at an education centre that's actually a British education centre. And after that, I moved on to an international school. So it followed the British system using the British exam board. So you've got Edexcel, um, Cambridge, and uh, <laughs> there's another one that's that escapes me. Is AQA, OCR? OCR, right, yeah. OCR, wow, you're really bringing the throwbacks for me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I remember using all of these exam papers when I was a teenager. Exactly. So they use a combination of three or four different exam boards. And then after that, I moved just recently last September to a local government school. So in a local government school, they use international Cambridge exams. And uh, yeah, and in my free time, I do a lot of theatre as well, local theatre. 
So that's mostly yeah, acting, dancing, singing, musical theatre. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk to you about that. But let's go completely back to basics. So you mentioned that you're currently in Brunei, where you live and work. Yeah. And Brunei is, you said it's an island. Is it an island? This correct phrase would be a tiny nation on an island. But but a lot of a lot of um, news articles and reports just summarize it to tiny island nation. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, just snappy sounding phrase. Yeah, I like it. That's a good brand. Yeah, it's actually on the island of Borneo. So Borneo actually has three different countries. So Brunei sandwich. It's, it's literally a dot on the map, and it's sandwiched between two states of Malaysia. So that's Sabah and Sarawak, and then to the south, this huge. Um, I think it's probably the largest part of the island belongs to Indonesia. They've got a state, a territory called Kalimantan, right under the Malaysian states. So it's shared by three countries. I don't. I think that's the only we're the only island in the world that has that that kind of arrangement. Because Australia is the biggest island, but it's or Greenland. But yeah, there are only one country on it. So Brunei is unique in that way. Yeah, that's actually really cool. A lot of people might not know where Brunei is. To summarize, Borneo is an island in Southeast Asia, and on Borneo, there's three different um, countries. Part of it is Malaysia, part of it is Indonesia, and then all of Brunei is on this island as well. Exactly. In the UK, the only time that you ever hear about Brunei is when they're talking about like the Sharia law, and I'm hoping I pronounced that right. That was correct. But it's for a pretty limited view of what a really diverse and culturally significant country is like. Yeah, so... Brunei is really interesting, even even within Southeast Asia, because so you mentioned culturally, officially Brunei. Okay, we'll go. I think the easiest thing to explain is the languages. So Brunei has two official languages, and that's Bahasa Melayu, which is a language that's spoken around the region by Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia as well. Though there are slight variations in how each country speaks their version of Bahasa Melayu. So that's one official language, and then the other official language is English. Having been a British colony way before and then culturally the largest ethnic group are the Malays and then that's followed by the Chinese and then indigenous group so even even within Brunei itself the Malays are not the original the, the native people here the Malays traveled down from the Malaysian side more towards the west of the region so there were indigenous tribes here already already existing and so those that's the third largest ethnic group and then there's quite a big expat community here so you have expats from the Usually they are from around Asia and around the West. Commonwealth countries usually, some Americans. They've also got, because of the oil industry, quite a few um, South Americans as well who work in oil and gas. So it's quite diverse if you grew up here. And because Brunei is so small, you come into contact with all these different groups on a much more regular basis than you probably would in a, in a larger country. So in Brunei, everyone's quite integrated. In terms of religion, there's... So Islam's the main religion. And then you have... Uh, the second biggest would be Christianity and Buddhism. Not quite sure how both rank. Um, but yeah, the, the, they would be the second and third. You don't really meet any atheists in Brunei. Generally, everyone has a religion. Very, very few of my friends, they are they are atheists. Or they have a religion on paper, but they don't really follow it. They're not really practicing. That was great. That was really thorough. I should call you Basil Wikipedia because <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot within that. For example, I didn't know that Malays were not native to Brunei. And I'm half Malaysian, Malaysian Chinese. And I always find it difficult to explain the difference between being Malay and being Malaysian. Because here in the UK, people don't necessarily have a good understanding of that. Yeah. 
I think an easy way actually to explain it would be how you could be English but not white. Well, Caucasian would be the official term for it. That's kind of similar to how you could be Malaysian and not Malay. Because even with Chinese, you get you get in Brunei, you get a lot of Malaysian Chinese because it's so close to Malaysia. So you have a lot of Malaysian Chinese, and then you have a lot of Bruneian Chinese as well. And they though they're all Chinese within them, obviously within the groups, they have certain ways of differentiating themselves from Chinese from another country. That's great, and I think it's really interesting because in the UK, as I said, they only ever report Brunei as a quite homogenous and a Muslim country, which it is. But it, there's also a, a, a lot of other cultures represented as well. And actually, when this podcast episode goes out, it might be Ramadan already. So right, Ramadan, yeah. Ramadan Kareem. We find out either Thursday or Friday. So that's the other thing with Brunei. We don't follow. like So how those days are determined, typically, well, in the olden days, depends on whether the moon is sighted. But obviously with scientific developments, you can now kind of know when the moon is full and when it isn't. So other countries would have typically set a date for Ramadan, but Brunei doesn't. Brunei still goes out to the top of a hill just to find out if the moon is there. So it's yeah. very common. Actually, it happens almost every year where Malaysia and Indonesia have all started Ramadan and Brunei still has not started Ramadan. So that carries on to Eid because the rest of the world would be celebrating Eid and Brunei still wouldn't have started. We'd still be fasting for that extra day. Yeah, I knew that different countries and different parts of the religion follow slightly different dates, but you know approximately when it's going to be. And are you going to be fasting this year? Yeah, <laughs> I, usually, <laughs> I usually try to. Um, there are days when it's when it's quite hard and it's it gets really hot here. So like around, it could get around to like thirty three degrees on a on a really hot day. Sometimes more, like thirty four, thirty five. Yeah, I'm not I'm not like too straight. If I'm not feeling too well, or I'm, I know I've got a lot of things to do in the day and I need energy, then I will break it. So with a fast, you can actually replace the days that you didn't fast in in other times of the year. So you're Muslim and you're part Malay, but you're also part Filipino. Yeah, I'm also part Filipino. So my mum's from the Philippines. And I feel like you have a lot of like Pinoy pride. I do. And I also uh, try to figure out where that comes from. So so here, Filipinos, they're not locals, but a lot of them come here to work. So you can really see like the work ethic that they possess. And it's something quite admirable. And I think they've, like Filipinos are quite favoured by different companies in here. And also, I think around the world. I remember watching like Piers Morgan did like a, a shout out, like but more than a shout out actually, like a tribute to Filipinos working in the NHS because I think his his helper at home is a Filipino. She was she was like I think zooming or skyping her friends, and he said how are they and stuff. What what do they do in in the UK? And then she was like, oh, they all work for the NHS. And yeah, so he's so so then he asked more about it and found out and he was like really humbled by it. It was quite. So you can trust the Filipino will find even the shortest 10 second clip in like a one hour news program. If it's talking about Filipino, they will find it and they will post it on social media. <laughs> <laughs> That's that where that pride comes in. <laughs> no, it's great. And I think it's, um, yeah, I really don't know. Where it's, it's a hashtag. And that's when I was about 12, I think I started hearing the phrase on Filipino media. And then when, when the hashtag culture came in and it became a hashtag and then it's like it's even it's even more prominent so what is the hashtag Pinoy Pride mm. <laughs> if you check the hashtag you can probably like in its millions now but yeah that Filipinos are good with words it's, I think it's something they, they got from like 50s America you know how like there's always like a like this catchy slogan to go with things and it's something that Amer- I think the US kind of doesn't really have now Filipinos still kept that part of American culture 
like if it's a brand, there's always like a, a, a catchy slogan to go with it. Like a one-liner. Like a one-liner, yeah. Like like this, if you can imagine like 50s, 50s ad, like Wrigley's. I don't know what the <laughs> slogan is, but it's something like that. So that's, that's not a good example um, for good branding because we, we have no idea <laughs> we what, have it what it is. Um, but yeah, if you, if you get the idea. Yeah, I do like that Pinoy Pride and I see that there's it's represented a lot in sort of entertainment and media. And I did hear about what Piers Morgan said on the like the UK breakfast show. And there, there are significant populations of Filipinos in the UK who are working in healthcare, in caring work or as domestic workers. Actually, now that, now that you've taken over the, the speaking for a little bit, I've had time to think about why it resonates so strongly with me. It's because that Pinoy Pride thing and the way Filipino culture is, it's very inclusive. But what I mean by that is um, Filipinos are where mixed mixed relationships and mixed marriages and um, interracial marriages between Filipinos and other races, not just Asians, um, people for, uh, of African descent, of Latino and, and, and Caucasian descent. It's very common. So in the Philippines, they have this culture of where if, if you are mixed, if you're much more easily accepted than I think in the rest of Southeast Asia or Asia for that matter. So like, Bruneians don't typically, I mean, compared to Filipinos, definitely they do mixed marriages less. But it, it does exist with people from a certain educational background who are more open-minded. So obviously, like my dad, they're more open-minded to, to interracial marriages. But yeah, generally, for the Philippines is very inclusive of, of people who are of a mixed background. Obviously, the, the diaspora is much bigger as well because you've got Filipinos that live in West in Western countries uh, around the world so they come back and there's a phrase that they're given it's called they're called Balik Bayan so that loosely translates to back to the homeland so these are people who have grown up in another country and have come back to the Philippines and so obviously their, their Tagalog wouldn't be so good if they even speak the language at all so they're very accepting of you if, even if you can't speak the language as long as they call this thing so like after Pinoy Pride I guess that's the brand would be Pinoy Pride and then you've got the slogan which would be Filipino at heart that phrase encompasses whether you are have Filipino blood in you or you're an expat that's moved there and has just grown to love the country and has decided to, to reside there even if you are fully Caucasian or fully African or fully Latino and you've and you say you're Filipino at heart you're automatically like embraced mm. by the community in Brunei it was a slightly different story growing up because I um, so my first language is English because my dad was a was an English newscaster um, for a local television station. So he always spoke English. My mom was Filipino who had lived in Brunei for quite a while, but she worked for a British shipping company as well. So she only ever had to speak English at work. And then outside in her social life, um, she mingled with a lot of expats as well. So my first language is English. My second was Filipino, was, te- was Tagalog which is the language of the Philippines, only because the helpers at home were all from the Philippines. So my mom spoke to them. So I was never taught the language. I just picked it up by ear. Bahasa Melayu, which is the Malay language, I only ever learned in school. So that's my third language. And I only learned it quite a few years after the first few languages. So here, if you don't speak it, there's a sort of... It's not that they, they ostracize you, but there's but there's um this feeling that the locals would know that, oh, he's not really like us 100%, for lack of better better phrasing of, of that situation. When I was growing up with um, local Malay Bruneian children, there was always that kind of fourth wall between us, so I never really felt a part of the community. Um, that said, I also had Filipino friends, and I went to a Chinese school. Oh yeah, fun fact, I went to a Chinese school growing up, so I speak Mandarin as well. 
Wow, that's a lot of languages. That's a lot of languages. It does get, it did get confusing. But yeah, so I went to Chinese school and, um, so in a Chinese school, it's funny. It's like, so this is going really deep into like racial identity right now. But in a Chinese school, everyone knew from the get go that I was not Chinese. So it's not like they expected me to speak Mandarin or it's not like they expected me to share the same cultural beliefs or religious beliefs as they did. So, so I was like the, the Malay, the Filipino Malay boy here so let's so he's not like us but we will welcome you with open arms so it's always that feeling with me with being in the chinese school i wasn't falling short of any expectations so i was completely fine with that and then i had the filipino side so like my mom's friends kids who i hung out with a lot and there i truly felt a part of that community because they spoke english obviously filipino tagalog is not a language taught in brunei in schools so they were as much foreign from their kind of filipino-ness as they were foreign in Brunei, but they spoke English, so we so that was something that allowed them to communicate with everyone. So we had our own little strange, like we're Filipino, but we don't speak Tagalog, but we speak English, and we all speak English, so we're all like yeah. the same family. Kumbaya, yay! <laughs> <laughs> so let me get this straight. So growing up, there were sort of three different cultural groups that you were part of. There was your Chinese group at school, which you didn't feel like you fit in with, but there wasn't any expectation that you were falling short because they knew that you weren't Chinese, so they didn't have that expectation. Yeah. And then on the other hand, people who are Malay speakers you felt like you fell short of those expectations because the Malay language is not your first language and they can always tell that it's not your first language. Right, whenever I spoke it, exactly. Um, because, like, from my name alone, you would know that I am Malay. So automatically there's this expectation of, oh, okay, you should be able to speak Malay, be interested in the same things. So, like, football and playing games. Well, actually, that, that sounds very much like anyone in the UK, actually. <laughs> but, but, yeah, there are things that all Malay boys did that I didn't always do continue with your summary yeah okay so the first part the chinese school part the second part which was bahasa malayu which is the malay language and then the third part which was filipinos in brunei who didn't speak tagalog very well and that's where you really felt like you fit in that's where i fit in and also with with regard to the activities i was talking about earlier so like brunei malay boys typically play football and go to like religious classes together which i wasn't really fond of either (laughs) <laughs> and then and then Filipinos would have they they love to sing and dance so that was something that that was there from the start like with Filipino kids like when you go to a like a gathering like a birthday party the thing they're going to make you do is like oh dance to this song and sing this song sing a Disney song and that was I was very much into that kind of stuff but they're also quite religious they're very religious Catholics actually in Brunei um, but again I wasn't expected to do that because I'm Muslim so like there was not that expectation to be religious in the church and stuff like that Basically, I was able to do things I wanted with them. Yeah, there's a real fusion of cultures there. Super. I would really love to pivot to talking about your passion for arts, particularly musical theatre. You kind of touched on it a bit there, but could you tell us how you got interested and involved with the musical theatre passion? Okay, so the the foundations were there from the Filipino upbringing. Birthday party, singing, dancing. Not something I really took seriously throughout school until the last year of, uh, of high school. So, so year 11. And uh, they had like a teacher's day celebration where students come up with performances. So that was kind of the first taste of, of being on stage. Again, didn't really think much of it. I thought it was just going to be like a one time thing. And then, and then that was it, which it was for a while. 
Then I went to sixth form, so that's when I moved to an, from a local school to an international school, an international British school, which had this amazing art centre and an auditorium and like a proper stage. And when I first saw the stage, I was like, wow, this is huge. Like, this is, it would be really cool to do something on that stage. And then come the auditions for a, for a singing group that they had. And then I did the auditions and then got in, did my first production. And then that was, that was kind of it. I, for the entire two years of sixth form, I was doing all that stuff. And then I went to the UK, went to Leicester Uni, and they didn't have a musical theatre society. So when I was doing like my last music before I left sixth form was Greece. And our director, who was from, from the UK as well, he was telling me like, oh, you're going to have such a great time at uni. So many unis in the UK have musical theatre societies. You would fit right in. And then I didn't do so much research into what unis I was going to. My big plan was to go to, the, to a US college. But that didn't happen. So I went to the UK. And then, yeah, I didn't do much research. And I ended up in a uni where there was no musical theatre society. When all my friends around like other parts of the UK. So they all had musical theatre societies, <laughs> I think. And then just Leicester did not. So I was out of it for about four years, four or five years. I came back to Brunei and then found this group that did theatre. And Because when I left Brunei, it was, it was barely... It really was just the international school that I was in that was doing big theatre productions. By the time I came back four or five years later, they were doing proper productions, this external group, of people, a theatre group that started out as a dance group actually called Relentless and then they now do proper theatre productions for people who have finished, long finished school and that's when I got back into it and I haven't left since. Yeah, okay, so sixth form when you went to the international school and saw the big stage, I imagine you had like stars in your eyes when you were seeing that. That would have been when you were, what, 16 years old? Uh, 17 actually, yeah, 17. Right. And even though you had a bit of a break from musical theatre when you studied in the UK, you're still able to pick that up now as an adult. Um, And I've seen some videos of the amazing performances by the Relentless Theatre Group. When that was created, what was the reception to that in Brunei? So um, I wasn't here for their first... So they started the year I left for the UK. So, So when I came back, they'd been doing maybe like four or five years of musicals already by then. So I don't know the initial reaction, although I heard that it was good because it was something that they hadn't seen before. And uh, when we do musical productions, it's always yeah, there's there's always great reception. The only thing in Brunei is it's because the the population is is so small. It's very hard to um, to, to do more than a weekend of shows. Is because it's already sm- a small population as it is, and then within that, there's only a handful. So the arts in this form. Like stage productions is very new to the to the Bruneian public. I'll say it's still very new. Some people are still just grasping onto the concept of people being on stage like for two hours straight. Something that Bruneians have always had, I feel like, is is they get bored of things quite quite quickly. So, or they're more like if they've done something already, they they're less likely to do it again if they have no real interest. What they're trying to do now is to get them interested because it takes you just going to a show and seeing it for yourself and then you'll realize the feeling because like a lot of times Bruneians will take things at, at face value and just say like oh it's so you sit there and watch people on stage for two hours straight and then they get put off by the idea so it really you really need to actually get them to the show <laughs> it's definitely enriching their lives I'm a big fan of musical theater and I think there's nothing quite like actually sitting in the audience and seeing the all singing all dancing and acting triple threats like super talented people on stage. 
And you can watch a Hollywood a live action movie version of a musical, or you can listen to the soundtrack, but it's not quite the same as actually seeing it from the audience. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I would quite like to learn more about the arts in Brunei in general. Right. Traditionally, Bruneians have always been artistic people, like going back into history. Bruneians were writing poetry and dancing and um, singing, and it's it's all part of this this region, I think. And then you have, uh, reli- so like religion is a big part of the community as well. So it's almost like with these, so obviously before this region would have been pagan, when they had all these like, you know, you know folk dancers to call upon gods and spirits and stuff. And then you have the religious side. So this is like a sta- what you call religions of the boat. So people in this part of the world have always had that kind of this disintegration between the religion and then the culture. So that's something that's always been finding the balance between those two aspects. So Brunei gained independence from the British in 1984, so a very young country, and was it still is in the in the process of finding its like identity. But Bruneians have have other forms of art as well, visual art, fine art, is something that they that they like. So for example, with with the painting, um, if you if you're a strict Muslim, you would find in the scripture that um, they discourage you. So it's not banned, but they do discourage you from drawing life. Growing organisms, uh, living things, is discouraged in in Islamic art. So you would find, like, if you went to like a mosque, you would never see uh, humans or things like that. You'd always see that what the Islamic art would be like geometric designs, and that's kind of the art that they have. But you'll still find a lot of Bruneian uh, artists painting flowers and you, yeah, people, and and they don't get chided for that. It's it's accepted. But if you're, it depends on who you ask as well, and the level, the extent to which they are more open-minded or more liberal or more conservative. So if that with a uh, visual art, a fine art, painting and stuff like that. If you were to move it to performance art, that's a that's a whole other thing. So obviously, uh, if you're a strict Muslim as well, you would be discouraged from from doing movements that might be perceived as sexual or flirtatious. And obviously, when you do a good a good storyline would always have the romance aspect to it. Yeah. Always have the hip thrusts. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually do that as well uh, for our for our productions. And it, and we're not trying to do that. It's accepted as well. But again, it depends who you ask. If you go to an older person that's more religious, they'd be like, oh, why do you have to do that? Whereas someone that's more liberal, and might be older as well, would say like, oh, that's there's no harm in that. Something can be desired, but maybe not deemed appropriate and you know the different the clashing ideologies between people of the same ethnic group we've also got the value so the the economic value is something that's more real so that affects whether someone will go down the path of pursuing a, a career in the arts or not more often than not it will be to not pursue a career in the arts and to do it more as a hobby but increasingly there are Bruneians that are doing it as, as a full-time thing of course, like many other Asian societies, it traditionally has been go down the route of becoming uh, something either in the sciences or medicine, or if if you do have to be in the humanities, something like law. If you have to be um, in the humanities. Like, if you have to be. Like, that's like the parents that <laughs> if you must do something in the humanities, you should do law. Because of harder times, so like oil recession. So you had that thing with like Iran and Saudi Arabia, that whole issue, and prices of oil went down so that affected Brunei who's uh, I don't think I mentioned this explicitly earlier but our primary industry is oil and gas so that affected everyone and it was harder for people to find jobs so then they had to resort to other means of making making an income for themselves so that 
started off with going into food. Uh, food businesses were a big thing and still are a big thing. That comes into the broader umbrella term for art as well, because yeah, it's it's uh it's food, it's cuisine and stuff like that. So that's considered an art subject as well. But it's increasingly accepted now. And after that, you have things like marketing. So a lot of marketing, graphic design, that's considered the more economically stable form of if you really wanted to be in the arts. So so it's slowly getting there. So it started off with food. And then it's, it's moved on to it moved on to graphic design being widely accepted as a job or a job in marketing and advertising. So now we're going the the physical arts, the visual arts that it, that we're still trying to get to get everyone on board. Now then, there's the question of whether you actually will be able to earn a living. So I think it's kind of a, then it becomes this is where it becomes kind of a cycle. So you'll never be able to get uh, a steady income or or means of of living with these professions as a performance artist if it is not valued the same way that the others are so with food food is obviously a necessity so that's why it's it's easier to accept that as a as a as a real job and then you've got the graphic design which is needed as well from it's easy to explain those but with performance art being a paint or, or even fine art being a painter being a choreographer being uh even even with fitness actually comes under i could i would brunei's context anyway i could say that as an art as well because it's uh yeah like becoming a spinning instructor and things like that it's those are the jobs that are harder to convince if these connections are made between these art forms and how they enrich people's lives then i think it'd be easier to convince people that these are careers worth worth pursuing it's so i'm just like putting things out there because they all interlink. Um, when you have, it's funny because in a country this small, all the different factors kind of linked up with each other. One particular social issue I can think of is mental health. So mental health in this part of the world growing up was not a big thing. It's only been in the last two, three years, I would say, with Twitter culture blowing up and the younger generation being more quote-unquote woke. So obviously in the West, uh, it's more widely recognized mm-hmm. in the West as being something that is a, a real issue. So in Brunei, it's still it's still starting to be embraced, but it is uh, being embra- embraced rapidly. What some people have done is linked the arts with mental health. So that's one way that value is being placed on performance art. They're basically taking whatever they can get. So people in the arts are trying to explicitly show the rest of the country that the arts is something viable, something that can be used uh, to tackle social issues. That's amazing. Um, wow, I feel like there's so many points to pick up on there. So let me just like pause and process yeah. <laughs> for a moment because, yeah, well, I'm learning so much and it's amazing to see. You can just tell how passionate you are about it, particularly when you're bringing up all of these things that relate back to your passion. Um, I don't expect our conversation today to get onto mental health, but I think that's something that is really crucial and it's a great way to spark the conversation about the arts and about mental health as well. I think it's very common for East and Southeast Asian diaspora, particularly with their parents' expectations in terms of career, to go for something which is more financially stable or or at least has, is seen to be more financially stable. And the arts always seems to be the last the last thing that people would consider and you're right it for me as well it was definitely like this is great for a hobby but don't even think about considering it as a career um but it's good to see that there is change happening and it sort of seems like the final frontier it is it is these many decades to finally get here where art is 
something that can be used. Yeah, well, change is slow, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Brunei is such a young country. Did you say 84? 84. So it is so young. So it's still finding itself. Um, it's still finding its footing. And um, different interest groups are also still finding their footing. And the arts is, is making its way. Currently, the community of artists um, is uh, growing, but it's still quite small. And it's quite, I think, one of the limitations in its in its spread is that it's limited to people who... I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping people from a from a certain demographic, which is people who are educated, the frontrunners would often have been people who have um, studied overseas or at least traveled around, um, and how so hence they have all these ideas. And then, so English is kind of a big language; it's kind of the main language that's used in the transmission of art. So, if if we're talking about the masses of people who don't really speak English in their daily lives, it's a bit harder to access the productions. What we're trying to do is also to create, yeah, to create something that's ec- economically sustainable for for artists. We obviously have to charge as well, so it's it, it's limited to people who can afford these things. For the arts movement to to truly push forward, it would have to be more inclusive, and it slowly is. There are increasingly uh, a lot of uh, productions that incorporate Asamalayu, or at least touch on more local topics and issues. That said, so for example, the theatre company I, I'm in, Relentless, what we do is we get, uh, what the founders, rather, what they do is they, they get scripts from international productions. So it's definitely almost always going to be English with, with this particular theatre group. And most recently we did Hairspray, which on the surface seems like, oh, it's very much set in America and it's American. But we tried to do it in a way where the locals could see how it relates to them as well. This is why I think musicals in particular are easier to present to the Bruneian public is because they incorporate art forms that Bruneians are historically familiar with. So that's singing and dancing. And then you have the, the themes that you try to, to bring across to them. How I would, I would like to see in Brunei is like some groups always have international productions because that is also a way of showcasing Bruneian talent to the world in a way that the rest of the world can easily understand. But I also think that there should also be more of an independent, localized groups, art forms, just how it is in any other country. I think you know, like that is crucial in providing different platforms for different people with different interests, different goals, different aims, and different talents. <laughs> that was a, that was about. I don't even remember what the original question was. Anymore. No, I'm not sure either. But I love what you're saying, and maybe you need to bring some of that. Filipino um, inclusive attitude to right, the exactly. um, performing arts field. You mentioned that your production of Hairspray, which you did not that long ago, there were links to Bruneian culture as well. Could you speak more to that? Yes. So so um, how we did that was, well, based on the themes alone, in America, it was, it was the issue between the, the Caucasians and people of African-American descent. Whereas in Brunei, we made it wealth and income, and it, like a wealth divide. So like it became rich and poor, which, which also isn't too straight too far off from the original concept. It's great that you can adapt these very well-known American productions to something which is suitable for your audiences in Brunei. I would be fascinated to know, how you mentioned before about clashing ideologies, how on earth you made the production of Greece and the sort of right. Danny Zuko um, hip-thrusting done by <laughs> Travolta in the original movie. How on earth did you do that? So that's the thing. This is why Brunei is a very, is a very interesting country, culturally, religiously. It's 
on paper, it's it's meant to be the perception of other Muslim countries all around the world is that Brunei is a very strict Muslim country. But when you come here, people are quite relaxed. See, like I said, because it, it goes back as well to this whole being a young country. So up until 1984, so like my parents were already in their 20s by then, Brunei was still very much in the Western state of mind. So pre-1984, or even after independence, for, for a few years after, all the like policewomen would wear skirts above the knee, uh, and then students would be wearing short skirts, boys would be wearing short shorts, like really short shorts, and girls would not be wearing a headscarf. Based on pictures from those days, 1980s, before that, it was very common in pictures to be wearing a headscarf, even during religious holidays for, for women. So all of this is, is very new. And I feel like sometimes people think, why is this happening? You know, as you go forward in time, you're meant to progress. And why is it going seemingly backwards? This is from a very, I'm talking from a, from a Western point of view. And I think it's them, it's basically the locals trying to embrace an identity that they did not have before. Because before, everything was, was British or yeah. Western. And now they're finally free to, to create their own identity. And it just so happens that the identity that they decided to go with is very much the opposite of what it was. All the all the people who went through all those changes are very much still alive and still they're in their forties and above. They're all wearing headscarves now, but they still remember the days when they used to go out in short shorts. And there were bars. There were there were bars in Brunei up until the uh, nineteen eighty nine. So so yeah, a lot of old people that came were actually very happy. I remember one of the most memorable things and uh, that happened was this older woman I see maybe she's in her 50s in a headscarf and like she came up and was like hey I want to talk to you and I was like oh my gosh she's gonna chide me to tell me off uh, for thrusting her <laughs> and she's, she, she actually grabbed my hand which is usually like uh, Muslim women would not grab your hand if you were not like a relative or a friend so she grabbed my hand complete stranger and said that was the best thing I have ever seen it reminded me of when Greece first came out when I was in high school <gasps> Wow. And this is like, I was like, oh my goodness. That's amazing. Uh, okay, you, you asked me earlier in the interview what what got me, like what sealed the deal was that moment. I can now single-handedly yeah. say it was that moment. You're on stage, you see everyone laughing, standing up, giving ovations, standing ovations and things like that. But it but it really took hearing someone uh, verbally express how it made them feel. That sealed the deal for me. And this is like, yes, I want to do this. That was it. That's amazing. So finally, eventually, eventually after like 45 minutes, I answered, clearly answered your first question. <laughs> we got to it That's in the great. end. That's great. That really shows the power of the arts, then, how you make people feel. That's what it's all about. And there's a million other things that we could talk about and touch on. I mean, we've already covered so many different topics, talking about Brunei, religion, language, going on to the arts and your experiences growing up and your own ethnic identity and how diverse it is in Brunei. And then other topics like mental health and your experiences actually being on stage. And so, yeah, we've covered a lot and there's so much that we could keep talking about, but maybe we should hold it off for another conversation. I think that's a really great note to end it on and it's hopefully motivating for anyone who's listening and thinking about pursuing a creative or artistic field. Um, there, There is a lot of opportunity out there and just because it hasn't happened before, that shouldn't stop you. Yeah, what's driving me is that we, we might not be getting the audience numbers that we want or even the financial support that we would I hope to have from the government one day, um, but it's a great feeling to be part of the group of pioneers that are driving the arts 
And if anyone in the world would want to come and like dip their toes in, <laughs> we would gladly welcome. I'll have to come over one day. But yeah, um, a minuscule step forward is still a step forward. Exactly. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Basil. I really, really appreciate your time. What time is it there now in Brunei? It is now um, quarter past 11. Um, but it doesn't matter because quarantine has completely messed up your sleeping pattern, as it has with mine as well. Yeah, it's like a time vacuum, time and space vacuum forever. Well, not forever until, yeah. hopefully not forever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation because I definitely did. And it actually makes me want to go listen to some musical theatre soundtracks now. I had tickets to go see Pretty Woman on the West End with my mum for Mother's Day. Um, but that was the week that the UK lockdown restrictions started happening. Um, so I'm really gutted that I won't be able to go now. I think our tickets are getting refunded. Um, so we probably won't end up going. I would love to hear if you have any comments or questions for Basil or anything that you want to share that's come up during this podcast. absolutely love hearing from listeners. So if you have anything you want to share or just say hi, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at yellowbeepod. That's also the same for Instagram. So feel free to slide into my DMs and you can also email us at yellowbeepod at gmail.com. I'm going to be releasing a new episode next week, so keep an eye out on social media to be the first to hear when it will be coming out. Speak to you soon. Bye.